1: is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin.
0: Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is genre-defying essayist, poet, and scholar Maggie Nelson. Her books of poetry include Something Bright Than Holes, The Latest Winter, and Shiner, which was a finalist for the Poetry Society of America's Norma Farber First Book Award. Her critical work includes Women, the New York School, and Other True Abstractions, A Look at the New York School Poets and Painters, which won the Suzanne M. Glasscock Award for Interdisciplinary Scholarship, and The Art of Cruelty, A Reckoning, a study of aesthetics and cruelty that was named a 2011 New York Times Notable Book of the Year. But much of Maggie Nelson's work is harder to categorize than this. Jane, a Murderer, is considered poetry and memoir. Her best known book, Bluettes, has been described variably as nonfiction, lyric essay, as poetry, as a blend of scholarship and poetry. And the Red Parts of Memoir is both autobiography and an examination of sexual violence and media spectacle. Maggie Nelson is on the faculty of the School of Critical Studies at the California Institute of the Arts. She's a recipient of the Guggenheim Fellowship in Nonfiction, a National Endowment of the Arts Fellowship in Poetry and an innovative literature grant from Creative Capital. She's here today on Between the Covers to talk about her new book, The Argonauts, a meditation on a relationship with her partner, the fluidly gendered artist Harry Dodge, on queer family making and on the limitations and the possibilities of language. As writer Chloe Caldwell aptly describes, the Argonaut lives in a gorgeous gray area that explores language, lust, loss, the ebb and flow of bodies, and limitations on identity and labels. The personal narrative is threaded with theory and criticism, employing a collage technique that Nelson has mastered and made her own. Welcome to Between the Covers.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much. That was very nice. Thank you, Dave.
0: You've described the Argonauts as Mm auto-theory in some interviews. Mm -hmm, Can you mm -hmm. tell us what you mean by by auto-theory to start out?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a term that actually now I know emanates from... uh, Uh, Feminist criticism, which makes sense, you know, in terms of uh, troubling the line between uh, subjectivity and objectivity and using the self in the theoretical writing. And then, but I stole it from Beatrice Preciato, now Paul Preciato's book, Testo Junkie, which was published in. uh, in Europe s- several years ago but just uh, a couple of years ago in uh, was translated into English by and published by the Feminist Press and I love that book and it was useful to me and I thought her description of the book and its opening pages as auto-theory um, or a body essay, she also called it um, in terms of, uh, you know, other works of mine have used philosophy or they've used You know, like Bluettes is more kind of aesthetic theory or color theory or things like that. But this book was really more engaged in, you know, theory theory, um, uh, specifically mostly, you know, gender, sexuality and critical race theory. It was kind of a love letter to um, my kind of 20 years ago, education and then things sense, you know, and so but it's also very autobiographical and personal as are some things that I write and it, it weaves the two together, you know.
0: Well it does seem like Bluettes is also uh, an example of auto theory in your in yeah. your work, but in a way it feels like that the Argonauts is both more personal and Mm -hmm. more theoretical at the same time. Does that seem right to you?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think of Bluets as a—I mean, I see why they have similarities, but to me, just as a writer, they're really different writerly experiments because Bluets um, is—it's allegorical, it's novelistic, it doesn't have named names, it um, it, has—it— its inspiration in part for its voice was something more like David Markson's Mickenstein's Mistress or something kind of... um like its first line is, suppose I were to begin by saying, so to me that's about as novelistic as like I get, you know, like in the, mm-hmm. it's like a, it's a suspended state. And this book is very, you know, its first line is October 2007, you know, so it's starting off, uh, you know, in the realm of, of spatio-temporal <laughs> embodied fact and, it, and the personal remains that way. So I, mean, I would, to me I wouldn't call it more personal, I would just call it a different way of rendering or experiencing personal information, which has more to do with facticity, and not um, uh, the kind of uh, I don't know abstract expressionist internal landscape of blueets or something like that. You right. know, and then the theoretical it is more theoretical because it's it's literally it's not it's it's explicitly a dialogue with uh, you know feminist and queer theorists that have meant something to me and people who are for the most part would self-identify as theorists in that way so I mean there are other people there are poets and artists and other things but it's um it's really more uh a you know back in the you know 70s or in the 80s anthology called this bridge called my back radical writings by women of color you know they talked a lot uh, in there about uh, uh theory uh being used for survival you know and I think that what a lot of people have said about this book, and I think that it's true, is that um, it's interested in uh, eschewing that whole ivory towel no- notion of, like, there's theory over here and praxis over here. I mean, this is a very old idea, the theory-praxis breakdown. This is, like, really not today's news. I think that—but I'd never tried to um, i never try. i tried to do anything that just so explicitly um, was so— kind of unashamed of using theoretical sources i mm-hmm. guess that in, in a non-academic setting yeah
0: yeah you know. well let's start with the autobiography and and weave our way to the to the theoretical okay. the book begins with a juxtaposition of mm-hmm. uh, uh, you and your partner both mm-hmm. going through a metamorphosis of sorts mm-hmm. your your partner harry's going through surgery and starting to take testosterone mm-hmm. so he's he's changing physically and mm-hmm. physiologically and mm-hmm. and you after uh Many failed attempts are pregnant, and you—you, you in a more familiar sense, to mm-hmm. most probably are also changing physically and, and mm-hmm. physiologically. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about mm-hmm. that juxtaposition in terms of the mm-hmm. enterprise of of mm-hmm. the, the Argonauts.
1: I think while all that was happening, a lot of people in my life were like, "Oh, you've got to write about this. It's so interesting." And you know, it always really burned me up. You know, like I was—I just felt like, "What? What's so interesting? Like you're sensationalistic. You know, you think what's great? Like I just was very really irritated <laughs> by it." But, you know, under my irritation, of course, you know, and I probably was so irritated because it was interesting, but it was, I knew that since that was kind of like the, you know, and it, and it indeed has been used as the kind of sensationalist tagline about the book, you know, um, that the book, in some ways, it's the Etra became about... I mean, I can't get inside Harry's experience, but kind of trying to get underneath what the simplified headlines, you know, are that are often incorrect about what, um, you know, what am I trying to say? That... That the way that either female or in this case something that might be called transgender experiences very freely um, pontificated upon <laughs> and dissected and criticized and critiqued or whatever from afar, but that there was a kind of um, internal experience of being inside bodies that I wanted to try and bear a certain kind of witness to, and um, and that that bearing witness would not fit under those taglines you know like the tagline for example the new york times used was you know nelson the author undergoes a pregnancy while her partner transitions from uh male or female to male but that you know we actually wrote them in correction because um that there's no, there's nothing in the book that supports that language about my partner's bodily transformations. That he, you know, that's not how he conceives of his transition. But in this moment, when there's a lot of focus on trans issues, it's I think very important to keep sending out specific experiences that don't fit. Whatever cookie cutter, you know, the like New York Times, you know, op-eds right. are feeding to us that given day because the point is specificity and diversity of letting human beings have their own experiences of their bodies and their selves and the gender is part of that. And the point is not making a new category and then trying to get people to fit into it because that's where the violence happens, you know. So I think in this case, um, you know, and I should also say that Harry's body is not the only, you know, it's um, it's the most obviously queer body to people who don't, um, maybe, you know, from afar or something in the text, but also part of the book was, you know, it's an exploration of the pregnant body as a queer body or just the body as a queer experience um, and just getting at non-normative, uh, you know, the, the fundamental weirdnesses of being alive in bodies, and that's something that everybody... Partakes in, rather than this being about special people undergoing special experiences, which is why in the kind of culminative passage about these two parallel metamorphoses, it says, you know, from the outside it may have looked as though, you know, your body was growing more and more male and mine more and more female, but from the inside, that's not how it felt. Um, you know, we were aging. You know, we were bearing each other witness, and you know, as we were, you know, growing alongside each other and you know, aging. I mean, it's kind of a punchline, but it's also that's what everybody is doing every day, you know. As we're changing to, unto ourselves and each other, you know. So.
0: Yeah, and I, I really love that part of the Argonauts where you you uh, trouble the idea of pregnancy being normal. Of mm-hmm. course, it's it's normal and yeah. it's normative, and yeah. the culture is you know pushes people yeah. towards uh, that yeah. being an ident a way yeah. of identifying as as a woman and as mm-hmm. a mother. Mm-hmm. Um, but you really you really defamiliarize it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i love the part where you you talk about how strange it is as normal as it actually mm-hmm. is also that you could produce or manufacture mm-hmm. a male a male body mm-hmm. inside of a female body
1: right 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 that, that
0: was that yeah. was really
1: i mean part of the book is what do i want to say like there are people who have said like how could you talk about growing a male body like that in a book that's all about troubling you know you know gender binaries or something but the book is not um how do i say it? there are a lot of moods or questions in the book you know and in one mood you know i may be meditating on what it's like to you know be pregnant with or have a son and other moods i may be you know letting go of the notion of son or male altogether you know there are different moods and the, and the narrator you know of the book is 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 a testifier <laughs> to different questions you know and different experiences and yeah i mean the pregnancy question is deep because it's um I mean, I guess this gets at before we're on the air and we're talking about the meaning of the word queer. And I think, you know, you don't get at the meaning of that word by saying like, is pregnancy queer or isn't it queer? You know, it's it, you know, insofar as if the word means looking for the elements of experience or. For some, maybe a political action or whatever it is that don't, you know, line up with all of the expectations that are policed as normativity, then really that has to do with, in some ways, you know, as much of an interior experience of what you're undergoing as a human as it does as to what is told to you from the outside. So I think you could most certainly have a queer experience of your pregnancy, whether or not you know you're never gonna, no gavel is gonna come down from on high to determine whether pregnancy actually really is essentially a queer thing to do. I mean, is this, that would be preposterous kind of things to say. So there's a lot of um there's a lot of questioning in the book about you know where where resistance and where change comes from you know internally or externally and how it gets enacted and 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 how to trouble also the line between you know the transgressive and the normal because i think people kind of torture themselves and or each other by trying to make those designations have content as opposed to, for lack of a better term, you know, revolutionary impulse, you mm. know.
0: Well, while we're on this topic, yeah. um, and I can't remember whether this is yeah. from an interview I read of yours or was yeah, in yeah. the Argonauts, but there was you, you spoke to the, the term transgender mm-hmm. where you said, yes, it could be considered a specific group of people, but another broader definition of transgender could include nearly everybody, mm-hmm. even in certain circumstances, mm-hmm. uh, white heteronormative mm-hmm. men. Mm-hmm. So w-
1: tell,
0: tell us about the troubling of that mm-hmm. word, just mm-hmm. like
1: mm-hmm. sort
0: of in the way that you, you did mm-hmm. a- around queer.
1: Well, it's hard to talk about that word right now, I think, because the word is in the process of kind of being disciplined. Um, like the word queer, the word transgender kind of came about uh, you know, historically, to differentiate from transsexual, to be a much broader category involving more people with maybe more diverse impulses than a desire to to transition surgically to a different gender. You know, um, while the word had that large umbrella root, we're not using it really. Uh, I mean, we are a little bit, but we're you know we're going we're going straight to Caitlyn Jenner, transgender person, and Cait- Caitlyn Jenner is not necessarily speaking. I mean. You know God bless her gender whatever you know whatever it is, but she's not necessarily speaking what might have been an original uh, well, I don't know this is hard to get into anyway I it's a um it's a term that's undergoing a lot of disciplining right now so I think it's difficult I think what I was getting at um what you're talking about about the term being broader it's not I would never want to there are human beings who experience on a daily basis, a kind of gender dysphoria to use the, you know, pathologized term that we've been given um, that I do not believe everybody experiences. And I would never want to mow over that very real thing and say it's something we all have. You know, that's not that's not a good mode, right? Because then that presumes that we we just start shellacking other people's <laughs> experience about what what we feel and that doesn't work. People do feel very radically different about about gender experience and that that diversity is like the number one thing I think that has to be um, reckoned with and accepted. But but secondly, I guess, but but on the other hand, I do think that it's a, a you know, a big mistake to, you know, I've, feminism has a long history of women feeling like, well, I'm not only woman all the time, you know, gender is a flickering uh, nature. You know, we have lots of queer people feeling the same way. And it would, you know, it would be profoundly to me politically, you uh, disappointing to devastating should the bodies of, you know, cisgendered you know, heterosexual men be the ones that were just presumably the ones that need do no questioning. You know, we all I think I think everybody has a complicated relationship to the disciplinary categories of gender and sexuality unto which we are born, and I think that's why Eve Sedgwick Who's was my teacher and who's at issue a lot in this book, Why, in, in part why her work is so meaningful to me was because not vis-a-vis vis- vis- vis gender but vis-a-vis vis sexuality, she was always asking questions like, why would like why on earth would homo and hetero be the defining features of a sexuality like why wouldn't it be you know you like fat or skinny you like old or young you like you know multiple partners or one partner like there's so many aspects of a sexuality and if you go to any porn site i know i'm sorry it's not family friendly radio but like you can edit this out but like if you go to any porn site i mean it's one of the most beautiful things it's like ostensibly straight Sexuality is full of, you know, can you play? I won't go into it, but whatever, you know, like, right. can you please put shaving cream on a toenail? And you know, whatever. It's like there's, there's, it's so diverse. Right. So I think that, that's not about gender. That's about sexuality, which is very different. But I think at the same time, it, it's really, um, you know, the disaster comes when we presume normativity is all great and fine. It's just these poor bodies that don't fit into it. Let's give them some rights. That's that's not the that's not the revolutionary image for how we might better be able to inhabit our diverse. Genders and sexualities to me, you know.
0: In case you just tuned in, we're talking <laughs> today to author Maggie Nelson about her latest book, *The Argonauts*. This seems like a perfect time to talk about the theoretical because you mm-hmm. you you've talked about uh, the difficulty of categorization, the limitations mm-hmm. of categorization, the potential violence mm-hmm. from um, over categorization, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and at the beginning of the book, you you not only. Um, talk about your personal lives and the, the changes that the two of you are going through together and, and separately, but you talk about the ways you've constructed your lives in relationship to language mm-hmm. um, and identified around a specific relationship to language mm-hmm. that were mm-hmm. polar opposite to each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you talk a little bit about the yeah. way Harry...
1: Right. Sure. Looked
0: at language <laughs> at the beginning of the Argonauts and the yeah. and what you brought to yeah. the beginning of the Argonauts.
1: <laughs> it's funny. Someone asked me what, recently what I thought the like the central conflict of this book was, and I think they thought I was going to say something about gender and sexuality, but I actually said no. It's this opening fight with Harry about language. I mean, they're related, but I think that the um you know basically like I'm a I'm a I mean Harry's a words person too. We're both words people. Harry, even though as a visual artist um, and a performance artist, you know is a kind of People have kind of mistakenly, until they've gotten to know his work, read this book and thought, oh, you're the words person, he's the image person. Not at all. It's more just that um, I've had this kind of sometimes glib, sometimes profound belief that, um, you know, I'm unworried about what words can't do because I'm so enraptured with what they can do. And I have this Wittgensteinian belief, which is on the first page, that – that um, You know, as he says, the inexpressible is contained inexpressibly in the expressed. So kind of instead of this paranoia about that which is ineffable, um, you just point your sights on specificity and articulation and, and trust that whatever... My whatever can't be captured in language or falls out of it is just kind of it's 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 hovering there. It's present, kind of like you know, Holy Spirit. I mean, at least for Wittgenstein, it was theological, like that. Um, you know, Harry, at least when we first met, was much more kind of um, you know he's he has a um, he has a kind of. I can't remember his name. Have a Derek Jarman, his name, like primitivist mm-hmm. streak, and kind of about like you know uh, he's a he's a fierce ecologist and feels a little bit like you know he kind of I think aligned and aligns language with one all the many forces that have moved us further and further from you know our harmonious and decent relationship with our planet and other things like that. So the opening, you know, has to do with um, you know and an Harry feeling very much and, and and this comes from gender, but it's not in any way entirely about gender, but about, you know, Harry's experience as a person, as a non-normatively gendered person, That I mean, as he says, like language around gender, ever since he was younger, struck him as like literally like medieval or worse. Just, just, just no. Like he just couldn't believe the crude, cutty, cookie cutter ness of language that people used because it never related to anything he felt inside. But that was just gender is just one example. He feels like that about a lot of things. So, so he kind of has a, a, a a very fierce. Um, agony and frustration with both languages' effects and with its inadequacies. And so, you know, some people have said I wrote the book to prove that I win because it's all <laughs> it's my words, <laughs> and I'm trying to show what language... You know, I'm trying to give an example of how you can express and contain the inexpressible. I think of it as more of a truce because, um, you know, it was important to me that at a certain point, actually, I, I inserted Language of Harry's because... Um, he's a beautiful writer, and I wanted to trouble I mean in addition to the many things that inserting his own language does, one of them was that I wanted to trouble this idea that to be critical of language meant you didn't use it beautifully because mm-hmm. he does, and he's describing a death scene in which I think he very much conjures the ineffable about going through that portal and describing his mother's yeah. death. you know
0: I do too. I feel like um, I don't feel like there's a winner. At the end.
1: <laughs> right yeah it, yeah
0: strangely i yeah. feel like i feel like at the beginning it's a theoretical question
1: yeah.
0: that is juxtaposed with what's happening in the changes that are happening physically and and, yeah. and what are ha- structurally to your family yeah but by the end it feels like it's very much on the body
1: mm-hmm. and
0: mm-hmm. And I think it's really powerful when we get to hear Harry's words. And it's interesting, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but when he's describing the deathbed scene of his mother, a lot of the imagery is very um, much about liberation and about life. And you're going through birth, but a lot of the imagery (laughs) seems to be about like the abyss and about death and about near near death
1: yeah 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 i've no one's pointed that out but i think that's really true and it's probably true of our natures in general which is that i think that you know i'm describing that bursting is in what i'm calling like being in the pain cavern and this kind of harrowing solitude and he's describing going out and looking at fireflies and a kind of dissemination which is a very important concept to him about, you know, I think he has a felt sense of where we come from cellularly (laughs) that I struggle to have.
0: (laughs) Well, it's interesting that I I don't know, uh, certainly I don't know nearly as much about Wittgenstein as as you do, but it's interesting that you choose him partially because he changed a lot around his relationship to what language could do. Because at the beginning, tell me if I'm wrong, but didn't he at the beginning have a theory of one-to-one correspondence that in the Tractatus, and then later yeah. he changed it entirely. Yeah. Like, was he troubled? Well, and you you, evolving t- you tell me
1: it? more because uh, this is an area that between the early and late Wittgenstein. That I mean, I love the Tractatus and I love Philosophical Investigations. I know there are huge chasms in between them, but yeah. I'm but I'm so much more of a um, impressionistic reader. So I'm yeah. curious. Well, to I don't understand. know that yeah, I could okay. do <laughs> anything on it, but I, but right, yeah yeah.
0: But I did. Yeah. I do think it at the beginning he um, believed in a direct one to one between the the word and what it was referring to, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then abandoned it right, actually right, right, called yeah. it the thoughts of a yeah. crazy person interesting. later yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah. But this idea of yeah. distrust of language yeah. that Harry has, yeah. that goes way back yeah. in philosophy, doesn't yeah. it? I mean, yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. even Plato was talking about how it distanced people. Oh,
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I go through that in Bluets, actually, because I'm talking about, yeah, I talk about the... Um, uh, Socrates calling color pharmacon, but it was also a means of describing, you know, language as that which is both, you know, that which might cure us and that which harms us. You know, mm. the poison and the um, the poison and the cure. And so, I think in some ways that's it's the same concept at play with via the Wittgenstein in in, in this book as well. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, t- tell us a little bit about you. Include Harry's words. Yeah. But it's at one point you're you're concerned about um what you ended up writing about right. so yeah, you're yeah, writing about yeah. your family yeah. both about uh your child who yeah. who, who can't speak for himself yeah. and right, about right. your partner who's private yeah. and then yeah. you have your own issues right. around yeah, yeah. how much you want to reveal yeah, yeah. and how much you yeah. don't yeah. Yeah. and you consider briefly in the argonauts mm-hmm. in to do in doing a uh, enterprise of co-writing
1: mm-hmm. right, T- right, tell right, us right, about right, right. your
0: right you're leaning towards that and then you retreat.
1: (laughs) well i didn't consider doing it in the argonauts i mean i think some some review i read said this book was like co-written or something and i was like oh no it wasn't you know i think what was interesting to me about that slippage was that if you show your hand and show that like there's a scene in here where i show harry a draft and because i say i allow him to make um you know comments and mechanical pencil for me to consider like that doesn't make something co-written that's like what most people do with non-fiction books that are going to involve intimate details of someone that you know who's named so that's not really a very new thing but I do also talk about in the book that it wasn't this book but that we when we first met you know and we're very in love and we remain so but what in that flush of like all the things you think you're going to do together you know we talked about writing a book together but as I say in this book um Uh, It eventually caused me too much anxiety because I just, um, you know, I go to work. I go to work in writing to know what I think and sometimes to know what I feel. And I'm, uh, I'm a strong person, but I can bend in the wind of other people. And I think that has a gendered aspect as well. And so writing is a really... Kind of sacred space for me to figure things out without any watchful eye. I mean, this is a very cliched rendition of what you know, the solitary writer, but it's but it's true. So I think that, um, but what I just kind of showed my hand in this book was that I did do that, and then I also, you know, let somebody else have some veto power over some parts, and that, and that eventually, since the book is really about interdependence, um, as a concept and as an ethics, I guess. Um, it made sense to me to to underscore those elements of its writing, and that and and for that reason include Harry's words as well. I mean, I don't think I'll do. I'm not. I'm not heading towards more collaboration. <laughs> like this was probably about as much as I could bear. But I felt as though, given the topicality, I mean, the topic of the book, and and their inter- interdependence, it's about you know, obviously with Harry, it's about a relationship, but it's also about you know. A f- family it's about gestation it's about politics it's about um our general american disgust and distaste for people with needs um and the way we feminize the concept of having needs and taking care of them and and then denigrate the feminine in turn and so in order to you know not have a nanny state or you know be p- whipped or mommy whipped or whatever we you know have a very Uh, I think, very disciplinary fatherly logic about, you know, non about non-unconditional love and how you can get basic needs met. And, you know, and, and all of that to me is fairly repugnant. So it doesn't mean that I'm imagining a You know, this is not a matriarchal fantasy about nurturance. It's actually the book I think was meant to to show, you know, there's there's hardnesses and abjection and difficulty in in the scenes of care and some some of the scenes of the book are about when you know care fails because care fails we fail each other a lot mm. too you know <laughs>
0: well i th- i think that the fact that you um invite harry to read your first draft mm-hmm. and that we get to see that in process yeah. and yeah. that you don't have the answers yeah. you pose the questions and we get to be on your shoulder as you yeah. you trouble your way through yeah, yeah, yeah. through the yeah. the contradictions uh, it reminded me of when when it has Leslie jameson on she mm-hmm. quoted uh, charles d'ambrosio who said mm-hmm. something like um, sometimes the problem with an essay be- can become its subject
1: mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it feels
0: like you allow
1: Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. the actual Mm -hmm. concerns you have about the writing Mm -hmm, become part mm -hmm. of the writing Yeah,
1: yeah. in
0: a way that is an asset to the writing, Mm -hmm, strangely. Does that make sense? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, I think it's like, I think that's a, you know, as a teacher, it's a kind of truism that I would say a lot to students about letting the problem of the writing be the subject. There are perils in that there's a kind of trendy way of doing that where we never feel like we're actually getting, you know, like there's a kind of very, I don't know like a kind of incrustation of self referentiality about that process, and i you know i'm i I try in the books to have that layering without having it be you know I'm always aiming to be like a laser not to do' any obfuscating you know and I'm always aiming to really you know to use to use that kind of Exposing of the performativity of writing, not to bring us further away from the kind of raw nerves of the thing, but to get closer to it. And I, li- I like writing when it does that, you mm. know, and exposes the terms of its production, you mm. know.
0: In case you just tuned in, we're talking to writer Maggie Nelson about her latest book, The Argonauts one of the sections that I really loved in the Argonauts Mm -hmm. Maggie was the story of your uh, feminist theory teacher Uh Christina and you told two stories you told one about a coup that happens in her classroom (laughs) and then you tell another about her being your thesis advisor, even right. though she right. found aspects of your work—I yeah. don't think—I don't know if you use the word repellent, I but think,
1: I think I might have said some, repulsive. <laughs> yeah. So <could laughs> Something you, like that. Could, yeah.
0: you, could you touch yeah. on both of those incidents and, sure. and yeah, yeah. what comes up yeah. from both of those?
1: Well, the Christina Crosby, who was my feminist theory teacher and who's a, a dear friend of mine and um, who's actually the um, my injured friend in Bluets, um, and she oh. actually has a book coming out next year that I'll just you know, plug for, it's called, I think it'll be called Body Undone. It's about her accident that left her in a, um, you know, uh, quadriplegic. But she, at the point, at the point in the Argonauts that I'm writing about her, she um, is, uh, well, the two stories are, the first one is just about her students kind of throwing a coup where they wanted her and other people to kind of I don't know. Identify more fiercely, um, and had a they staged class away from the classroom, and then gave people an index card and a sharpie to write like how you identified at the at the um, this kind of height of like '90s identity politics. And you know, for her who'd been kind of teaching deconstruction and deconstructing identity, you know, this was very very painful episode. So, and she wrote "lover of Babe," which was her dog, on her card, which kind of reminds me of you know Foucault when asked you know how he identified, he would say as a reader. You know, like these kind of different ways that we <laughs> give to get out of. The, I keep using the word disciplinary today. I don't know why. I must have you know drank it with morning coffee. But like you know, the disciplinary aspect of identity of you know of identification. Um, anyway, so that's the first story. And the second story was just how she was at that point fairly averse to the personal in writing. And so I wanted to write a thesis as a as a college kid that was kind of half my own poetry and then half was a scholarly scholarly essay on Sylvia Plath and Sexton and notions of um, confession. And she was kind of like, I don't know about this mixing together of these modes, you know, but you're smart, so we'll give it a try. But that's why I also put in the plug for her beautiful book, Body Undone, because you know, you fast forward 20 years, not only are we in these changed forms where I'm an adult and have changed in my ways, and she's in this radically changed form from a from an athlete um, to a quadriplegic. And, but she's also changed in terms of, um, you know, her last book was about Victorian literature. And her new book is this, you know, excoriating and lovely um, account kind of vis-a-vis phenomenology and about what it what it what it means to have a body and what it means to have a damaged body you know so it's kind of a um you know it's a deep pleasure to uh not her injury which is a deep sadness but her um capacity to move to writing about the self um and so beautifully is uh, a, a lovely link that now we share you know
0: You cite in an interview a really interesting thing around the subject of the private and the public Mm -hmm. um, from a Chris Krause review of Mm -hmm. Eileen Miles. Mm. Um, Like Kathy Acker, Miles values the most intimate and shameful details of her life, not for what they tell her about herself, but for what they tell us about the culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's really a fascinating
1: Yeah, I mean, the thing I, I like about that is that, I mean, I think... That's what's the phrase like Monday morning quarterbacking, like, like later on, you can be like, yes, these details tell you about the culture. I think, you know, at the moment of writing, like I don't think I, I, go, I don't care and I wouldn't encourage any writers to care. Like you can't be like, oh, this private detail will tell us something about the culture and this one won't. You know, you just write out what you need to write out. But I think that, you know, I'm I don't believe there are any private details that don't tell us anything about the culture and kind of vice versa. So right. I don't really know since I see no, I mean, I hear people all the time rehearse this issue. I can't believe we're still talking about it, honestly, but people still rehearse this issue about this, um, you know, bifurcation of our private lives and of, you know, public life. And I I think part of it to me is that, part of it to me is political in that, And that certain bodies, I mean, black bodies, female bodies, you know, privacy is a gendered concept and many people have not had access to either privacy or a public space or public space in the same way. I mean, they still don't. Hence, Black Lives Matter and everything else. I mean, it's we don't experience privacy and, and public space the same way, depending on the forms of body we have. So given that, when people even talk about privacy in the public as opposed, I don't even know often what they're even talking about, you know, because, I mean, obviously it's a very, you know, cliche, but, you know, even Roe versus Wade, you know, stands on the privacy of a woman's relation with her doctor. Well what, well, what is that? I mean, why, is that the kind of reproductive justice we want? You know, not to me, you know, like, I'd be much happier to have it be a much more public decision, you know, not a, right. it doesn't need to be a private, you know, this whole privacy thing. I'm like, it's not private. It's just non-enforced childbearing. Like, that just seems like we could all get behind that in a public way, you know? Right. So I think, that I'm just um I like the crisscross statement not so much for like its indication there may be ones that don't tell us about the culture but more about Eileen Miles as a writer as somebody who's very practiced in making those links between the private and the cultural just as a kind of commonplace in the work and know? that
0: term she uses vernacular scholarship yeah, yeah yeah that I think you do really I really love the format the materiality of the text in Argonauts in mm. specific the way that um the quotes of these different mm-hmm, thinkers mm-hmm. are actually enmeshed seamlessly in the body of the text mm-hmm. just italicized and yeah, y- yeah. you can look over and see who said it yeah or you can continue yeah, yeah, reading yeah. the text yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. it's this yeah. conversation yeah. that
0: um it, it just flows through yeah. with your own yeah. words it's well, interesting that's good
1: yeah i mean ever since i mean i got a phd and ever since i you know been doing academic writing i've been trying to undo and find out how to use other people's quotes in a way that is that, that really performs how deeply a part of your thought they become and every book I do I try something a little bit different you know this book the marginal attribution seemed seemed to work um in bluets I use parentheses um
0: this is my favorite one. Oh,
1: great yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it will yeah. recur or not it really is just cribbed from Roland Barthes like everything else about my work so
0: do you, do you use <laughs> index cards like he does, or like he did? Like he would have those in, uh, files of index cards and then... I
1: don't. I use know. some index cards actually for a book of mine, The Red Parts, but I think that's the last. Oh, and I used them in bluettes, I guess. Those are the last index cards I've had.
0: Yeah. Well, what I really love about the the vernacular scholarship mm-hmm. the, is it's kind of like, you know, when I was growing up and listening to an album that, mm-hmm. of a, of somebody and I could read the liner notes mm-hmm. and see who they learned how to mm-hmm, play mm-hmm, from or yeah, yeah. who they were listening to yeah. and then you could follow the family tree of the, the specific yeah. musician yeah, and yeah, it would yeah. lead you 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 had no idea where you'd be three steps yeah. from there yeah, but yeah, you've yeah. really you've yeah. really um made transparent mm-hmm, it seems mm-hmm. to me a a family tree yeah. if we want to follow yeah. your thinking yeah it would be very easy to come up with 20, 30 books from here.
1: Yeah, I mean, it always kills me when people say, like, you know, so what were some of the inspirations for this book? I'm like, dude, have you read the book? Because, like, you know, like, I mean, there are maybe some closet inspirations, but not really. I mean, the book is a record of its, you know, it's whatever you call it, autobiographia, literaria. But I think that at the same time, um, I mean, this book in particular was very important that it be that way because it's about, for lack of a better term, family. But it's about the different meanings of that word and you know in some ways even though it's about quote-unquote my family you know my family is also my intellectual family and and that's why in some ways the book is called the Argonauts because I wanted a word that was people and like a tribe doing something together and there are so many heroes of mine that you know that this book is you know you know everybody from I don't know just Audre Lorde and, to James Baldwin. You know you name it, they're all like in there. So I think it's like um, it was important to me to kind of imagine this ship, you know, ship of fools that we're all <laughs> that we're yeah. all in at times together. You know,
0: in case you just tuned in, we're talking to writer Maggie Nelson about her latest book, *The Argonauts*. Well, I do think you reveal a lot of the family tree, but you also answered about some sources in an in an interview and in an mm-hmm. article and some of them were surprising like some were not mm-hmm, surprising mm-hmm. like you you mentioned Susan Sontag mm-hmm, as a touchstone mm-hmm, and James Baldwin mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I, I can see that in in a lot of your work actually mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but then for this book you you mentioned someone that was surprising and mm. i'd be curious just to hear a little bit emerson. about Emerson is that time out yeah.
1: okay yeah
0: <laughs> like, i don't i never yeah. thought of Emerson reading, right, right, reading right. the yeah, Argonauts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. tell us about emerson
1: oh emerson's all scared all over my books you can it's um i think what happened with Emerson was that, um, I mean, like everything in life, I attribute it to two great teachers of mine. One was Annie Dillard, who was my teacher, um, early on and who obviously is known as a, you know, I mean, she, she married the Emerson biographer, who's also a lovely friend of mine, Bob Richardson. And, um, and he's a biographer of Emerson Thoreau and William James. And, um, and then I had a teacher in graduate school, John Richardson, who loved Emerson, and I took many, 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 many semesters of a course called American Aesthetics, that in many ways used kind of Jonathan Edwards, Emerson, uh, this kind of um, mix between the natural and the theological swirl of you know, a kind of branch of nonfiction writing that doesn't, I'm not, you know, it's it's not sermons and it's not, you know, what are those essays of Emersons? They're 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 sermonistic, um, but they are. Uh, they how do I say it? Like, they, I don't think I have this in the Argonauts actually stylistically at all, but they, 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 they set up shop and in my mind, my, my image of Emerson essays is often I'll be like imagining them happening like a windy stair somewhere or like in a, or rolling around in a kind of rainbow-colored cosmological space. Like, they're very strange in terms of like where the writing is happening, you know? And I think that that is totally fascinating and I just think, you know, there are so many Emerson lines that are kind of branded onto my head and many of them appear here, you know, one has, the one in here I I think that recurs is about um, him saying that spirit is matter, um, you know, pressed so thin um, and and his um, his own. I mean, this relates to what I was talking about with Harry before and about ecology, but his um, Emerson's own. Migration, I guess, about thinking about what spirit is and what matter is and what they have to do with each other, and is mm-hmm. nature the kind of term in between that negotiates? And I am very interested in those questions. So.
0: Well, let's continue on that yeah. on that thread of of spirit and matter, because another question I have is around Buddhism, because mm-hmm. it it occurs in several of your books, mm-hmm. and you've mentioned Chagyang Trungpa as a, mm-hmm. one of the canon <laughs> for you um, as one of the canonical writers. Mm-hmm. Um, is it an influence on your writing? It, uh, and and the, part of the reason mm-hmm. I ask is because um, you talk at one point about leaning on the writing of others mm-hmm. and letting the writing of others haunt mm-hmm. you. And, mm-hmm. and the way you describe that mm-hmm. often feels, or feels like it has a resonance with like a collective consciousness. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I wondered if that came mm-hmm. from anything around mm-hmm. Buddhism for you. And your writing.
1: I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm not a Buddhist, and I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a reader of Buddhist texts, you know, not a practicing Buddhist. Although I've, I've sat my, sat my share on the pillow, but um, <laughs> but I'm, you know, unaffiliated. Um, but I think that in reading Buddhist texts of varying kind, and I am partial to the crazy wisdom of um, Chung <laughs> Trungpa, but I, I. I just find that Western thought gets involved in these knots that when you—they are just—they seem very laughable sometimes when they are so quickly dispensed with when you read Buddhist texts. And I find—I mean, when I was writing about cruelty or—I mean, anything that poses— Anything that poses these these binaries that seem that seem to flummox the heck out of us. They're just, you know, when you understand the relationship of this kind of, you know, non duality. I mean it sounds so cheesy, but it's just very it's just very true. So like if you're like in the cruelty book, I'll, um, The Art of Cruelty, you know, I'm writing about this notion of like things having um, near enemies and far enemies as concepts and you know, and and like compassion being a near enemy of of um Cruelty, or these different—I don't know—they're they're just these all these different mappings and ways that, to me, are very, very useful of thinking of things like near and far enemies, or um, you know, the, the 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 unsurprise of having one thing appear where it seems banished, but of course it's also you know sharing roots. Um, I don't know, so I think that there's a lot there, and I think that, um, and then you know, Roland Barthes' uh, his whole book, *The Neutral*, which I really love, which is very much about picking third ways in between. Um, under the kind of menacing pressure to take sides, but those third ways... I mean, this is being now echoed in a lot of anarchist Western writing, um, specifically, I think, a lot of, like, post-Occupy writing when in that movement people were talking a lot about, it's so strange, they don't seem to be asking for anything, you know, but to people who are kind of practitioners of this, it's like they're very clearly choosing a third way and, you know, and reflecting a lot of recent political writing about, about um, non-participation... Uh, changing the terms, refusing the terms that are offered to you, all these different things. So that, and that to me has a very strong Buddhist element that I find as a critical thinker, it agitates some people who find my writing to be inconclusive. (laughs) Like when I wrote the cruelty book, I can remember doing some radio or some show where, you know, it was like, oh, that's all really well and good that you're putting all this violence and art in context. But tell me, you know, do you think watching violence makes us more cruel as people? You know, and I was like, <laughs> right, like, you know, and, and you are and you feel like, you know, you feel bad because you're like, oh, that's what you really want. You know, you just want me to tell you. But, you know, I'm just right. not that person, and that will that will prohibit me from being a certain kind of public intellectual, but it will allow me, hopefully, to be the kind that I actually am, which is somebody who is more interested in specificity and context and, and, the, and the true act of of criticism which to me is more about the mind in motion you know
0: is that your attraction to Deleuze as Mm -hmm. a philosopher because when you talk about in buddhism giving you a way to Mm -hmm. sidestep the terms of like not Mm -hmm. inherit inherit Mm -hmm. the
1: the Mm -hmm.
0: questions necessarily Mm -hmm. of the western tradition Mm -hmm. it feels like he kind of does that yeah in a way he's like well Yeah. The mind and the body might not be the same thing, but it might not be the crucial question we should be asking. And so he just starts from another place. And it's so weirdly radical. Yeah. But so yeah. simple at the yeah. same time.
1: Well, you get into this knot where you think, okay, here are the main questions, mind, body, question, whatever. And you think to move on, you have to solve them, you know, but the, the action of just saying, huh, interesting, but shrug. I think the actions over here, you know, is a very um, worthwhile one. And I can remember when even being really, really young, like in high school, I read um, a book of John Cage interviews. I didn't know anything about his Buddhist inflections or anything, but what I was obsessed with was when interviewers, here we are. That's why I say I've learned this skill. I don't always use it. But, you know, interviewers would ask him a question and he would say, forgive me. I don't think that's an interesting question. And I just couldn't believe (laughs) that he sounded so polite and so uh, non-untriggered, as we say, and yet he just refused that he just said it was and, and he just said it wasn't interesting. He didn't say it was wrong or angering. He just says, it's not interesting. That's not an interesting question to me. So I just think that that forgive me. I don't find that interesting question. It's just a kind of constant. It's going kind to of, It's a kind of, I hear it in like a British accent, which he didn't have. But I just hear it kind of ringing in my mind as this endless possibility. And then behind it, the goat is, you know, what is the interesting question? Hmm. And how do we get there? You know,
0: well, let, let's return to the beginning briefly. You, mm-hmm. you you said that some people wondered whether the argonauts was you winning the argument mm-hmm. around around language uh, against Harry's argument, and that definitely wasn't my opinion. Mm-hmm. But you you described the book ending in a truce. Do do mm-hmm. you do you feel like that's true? Uh, that wasn't my experience mm-hmm. of it yeah, yeah, of yeah. it being a truce. I don't no, know that I, I, I think, could articulate I think, it. But. I think
1: the question became uninteresting to both of us you know and I don't think it's as I don't think it's as interesting for Harry at all anymore Um, and it is not interesting to me I mean there's a tradition of this too like I'm thinking of um, Richard Rorty's philosophy in the mirror of nature I don't know if you know that book but where he just kind of says like oh you know, we've been using all these ocular metaphors about knowledge, like I see or whatever, and like it was the wrong. Me- we were on the wrong sense. Like it was the wrong metaphor. But you know, these kind of moments where you just kind of turn the kaleidoscope. You know, and I think, um, I think that uh, the reason why he comes to mind is because he also is not. He also very explicitly turns away from this idea of the problem of representation uh, in being the problem you know like that there is a real and how do we represent the real and how do we live with the fact that we only can see through a glass darkly or whatnot you know he just says not you know wrong question because every being or anything you know sentient is not perceiving the same world because the world's determined by our senses so I mean I think Harry and I still different that he still believes there's a real somewhere Um, and I don't know that I do but I think that in some ways um, we both just have moved on to focusing on our own apertures he always tells a story about when he was kind of self-taught and didn't go to college and when he went to grad school for art everyone was talking about representation and he didn't know he thought they meant like political representation he didn't know what they were talking about you know Mm -hmm. and but he actually held that confusion of not knowing if we were talking about political representation or like art representation you know he actually held on to it for so long in a confusion that it, but it also it kind of bloomed and, you know, he has a, so he has a drawing of an Elmer's glue bottle that says, let no one, the Elmer's glue bottle is saying, let no one represent you. And it's kind of funny because it's like saying like the objects of the world can't be, rep- but it's also saying like, don't let anyone speak for you, but I think that this book is in some ways that conversation about language. The book is not political about like the representation of the queer or the feminist or the trans subject, but there is, I think, to a Reader with a certain antenna on there's a lot of the arguments that the book is making do undercut a certain uh, normative political argument about representation and rights um, that would be like. As if those are the only way to go as we try and find more equitable ways to live, you know. Yeah. I, hope, I hope I'm not so far afield that no, no, it seems that, to make sense. Okay. That matches yeah, my okay.
0: experience more than the, the true side. Right. Idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somehow I can't articulate it, yeah. but somehow I feel like uh, your family making and mm-hmm. the um, your bodies mm-hmm. in the book mm-hmm. answer the question without words right. somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I,
1: yeah. I mean, that yeah. doesn't
0: make sense because you're using words. Yeah. But, yeah. but it, it ends in a place yeah. that feels like the question has fallen away.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. I hope so. You know, I hope so. Well,
0: c- mm-hmm. can you yeah. can you uh, talk a little bit about what Harry's working on now if mm-hmm. you feel comfortable and maybe yeah, what yeah. if you have an inkling what your next project is?
1: Well, Harry just had a big show in New York at his gallery wall space. It was all mostly sculpture and a video. and he's taking a break by trying to visit a lot of national parks <laughs> and clear his mind and get some nice. let the wells fill up. you know, I think that um I think you know, I, again, with this question of representation, he's kind of been in a long um He began performing with his body and voice in film and on stage and then had a a kind of long swing away, mostly because he felt like his body was um, so confusing for people that he couldn't just convey what he was meaning to convey because everyone was just like, why does he have a beard, you know, and, like, I just couldn't, they couldn't um, take those leaps, so he kind of removed himself physically from his art for a very long time mm-hmm. and, and um, either collaborated with people who were performers or made abstract, uh, you know, drawing and sculpture, and he's just started, you know, he just, the video that we just went up in New York was um, him performing, and I think he'll probably do more performance again um, now, and I think that he's also, you know, he's uh, you know, he's really interested in questions about technology. His show was called the Cybernetic Fold, which is an antiquated term now from you know it's it's a non a non-current use but I think he's um, it refers to a Sedgwick essay that aims to trouble the binary between the analog and the digital and to show how analog and digital systems, Are usually always even in our human bodies. Like we have some systems inside that are digital. I mean, not digital, digitized, but um, that have like they're like they work on an on-off, and then analogs work on a kind of grayscale. So he's very interested in those questions, and we'll probably keep making sculptures Mm. that try and attend to those physically and other work. And I don't know. I'm I don't know. This book interrupted a book that I wanted to write. That was a a more scholarly book about kind of the fate of emancipatory logics from the 60s to the present. I'm not sure if I'll go back to that. But as a kind of offshoot of that, I'm um, working on writing something about um, Carolee Schneeman, who's a performance artist and a visual artist and a filmmaker, um, who was also very interested in emancipatory practice. Hmm. And I'm interested in, I'm interested in whether or not It's a good thing in some ways that we've given up (laughs) on on a discourse about freedom and emancipation that is, um, that that the ways in which, especially if it's opposed to what I was previously saying about interdependency um, or dependency, but I'm, you know, worried for, I'm worried for us as we shut down, you know, as notions of freedom become increasingly tinny, as we head into the next presidential cycle. Mm. Um, And we'll hear a lot about freedom, and we're not going to hear about very many visions of life that to me seem very free. (laughs) Mm. So I'm curious about working on those things. Well, Mm. I
0: look forward to what comes next.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Thanks a lot. It was
0: great having you on Between the Covers today, Maggie.
1: Thank you so much. We're
0: talking today to author Maggie Nelson about her new book, The Argonauts. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Hmm.